But first, to the new wave of global unrest. Protests and insurrection were at very low levels during the early pandemic, but that hasn't lasted long. First came a wave of anti-lockdown rallies in countries such as New Zealand, Canada and right here in Australia. And now global discontent is rising sharply. Rising fuel and food prices are being are said to be bringing people to the streets in many countries. And some of these countries are heading heavily indebted from the pandemic and unable to cushion the blow of rising inflation. So, can economists predict where the next flashpoint may be? And if so, can the unrest be prevented or at least moderated? Joining me to discuss the IMF's research in this area and their potential dashboard solution is US-based economist Philip Barrett. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Hi, Kath. Philip, just how difficult is it to predict when food and fuel prices will spark tension in a country? So in general, it is quite difficult to predict social unrest. Um, One of the the common themes we find from uh, a number of pieces of research that we've done uh, here at the IMF is that a number of factors uh, tend to drive uh, social unrest. And so by social unrest, we mean things like you know, protests, mass demonstrations, uh, riots, and the like. Uh, and some work that I've done and, and that, that my other colleagues have produced uh, has come to the conclusion uh, that three things are important when it comes to thinking about uh, what what drives social unrest. Uh, and from an economic perspective, we're obviously more interested in sort of social and economic factors uh, driving uh, unrest. And actually, the first conclusion and a thing that we were somewhat surprised to learn is that a lot of unrest is not related to economic factors. Uh, indeed, we've seen that to a large extent uh, this year. Uh, there's been sort of waves of regional unrest in the Sahel uh, region of Africa, just south of the Sahara, as well as in uh, Central Asia. And those uh, waves of unrest haven't obviously been driven by economic forces. Uh, For instance, in Central Asia, uh, general anti-government sentiment and some ethnic tensions were really what was driving unrest there. You also mentioned unrest in places like Canada and New Zealand, and and you called it anti-lockdown, which I I don't think is a a bad description, but is uh, something that's not necessarily directly driven uh, by economic factors. Mm -hmm. So that was the first somewhat surprising and interesting uh, finding that we had. Um, And beyond that, I think there's two further findings uh, which are quite interesting. Uh, The first, um, and this comes from particularly from some work that my colleagues did who used uh, some machine learning algorithms. First thing is that uh, the strongest predictor by far of unrest is whether or not unrest has already happened in that country and to a lesser extent in in neighboring countries. Uh, And then beyond that, some distance behind whether or not unrest has happened in the recent past uh, are factors like uh, food and fuel prices and and prices in general. So I know that economists and the IMF, IMF rather, are developing this dashboard to evaluate social unrest and, and tensions. Are they the drivers that this dashboard is looking looking for? I mean, how does it work? What's it based on? Uh, so the way that we measure the risk of social unrest uh, is based on, on these sorts of drivers. And, mm. and as I said, um, it's important, first of all, to recognise that a large fraction of unrest is not driven by economic factors. And that's that's an inherent and an interesting limit 
on 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 the analysis that we do. Yeah, that's interesting, beyond- isn't it? If I might just interrupt there, Philip, because yes. if we look at the economic drivers right now with respect to the war in Ukraine, uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has warned that the coming months threaten the spectre of global food shortages. We've got Turkish inflation at 78%. We have the bread crisis in Egypt. These are economic factors which... I mean, you would forgive someone for thinking that that would be the main reason um, for social unrest and that will then predict where we are likely to see the future problems. Yeah, and and I think some of this is the difference between uh, sort of a deep driver and uh, a problem of prediction. And I think the right sort of idea to have in mind uh, when we come to thinking about unrest is not that there's some sort of simple mechanical link from uh, this economic factor or that economic factor to unrest. Rather, it's that there might be long-standing uh, uh, sources of dissatisfaction that can continue for a very long time without necessarily feeding through to unrest, and that later on, at some point, there can be a trigger. And that trigger can be seemingly unconnected to the underlying drivers of unrest. A good example of that is uh, during the Arab Spring, when the, the trigger that most people point to is when a Tunisian street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, set himself on fire uh, in protest of mistreatment by police. And that, uh, in turn, led to a number of governments in the Arab world falling, very widespread spread protest, and civil wars breaking out in Syria, Libya, and Yemen. And If beforehand you had made the prediction that that would happen, drawing the link uh, from that particular uh, instance of self-immolation through to broader unrest, people would have thought that you were crazy. And that just goes to show quite how hard it is to predict these triggers, even though the underlying causes of unrest uh, might have been there for a much longer period. Mm, It's interesting. I'd like to um, just draw you on the point that you made that unrest might not necessarily lead to destruction, if you like. Are some of these unrests that we're seeing just healthy venting rather than pent-up anger? So that's a great question. We don't, we don't take a, uh, a normative position on, on what constitutes healthy venting and, and what constitutes other forms of unrest. Mm. But what I can tell you uh, is that when we look at the economic consequences of unrest, it's very clear there uh, that, that institutions matter a very great deal. So, for instance, one of the pieces of work we've done shows that stock markets respond quickly and negatively to episodes of unrest, but that that varies considerably depending on how open and democratic countries are. Countries that are much more open with higher standards of governance tend to see almost zero response of their stock markets, but countries with worse institutions see a much bigger and larger negative impact. And we speculate that that might be because those countries with those better, more open institutions are better able to resolve the differences in opinion that cause the social unrest. Mm. And so markets understand that. They see that social unrest is an expression of different opinions, but has a scope to be resolved within the system. Mm. In other more more autocratic or repressive systems of, of government, there might not be those mechanisms to resolve it within the system. Should we be alarmed uh, about the coming months with food and fuel prices set to rise given the uncertainty in Ukraine and the war there? And and also when you look at the inability of these poorer countries to repay debt, some of them have public debt to GDP ratios of 70%. So are they the regions that you think will be the next areas of unrest? 
So to, to be clear, some of those issues that you're mentioning, such as very high debt burdens, are problems in their own right. It's, it's not because they're going to cause uh, social unrest. Inflation is another such example. The motive for addressing inflation is that inflation is is a painful and, and difficult thing for society to have to deal with. Uh, unrest is not really the main uh, motive for dealing with it. However, that said, uh, even though some of the research we have shows that the link um, from, say, prices uh, through to unrest is has not always been a terribly strong one in the recent past. Uh, what we're seeing now is exceptionally large increases, uh, particularly in, in food prices. And, and that will obviously have a large impact in countries uh, uh, with lower incomes where food is a larger share uh, of expenditure. Mm. And so uh, what that might mean is even if the link is quite weak, if the change is large enough, the eventual impact could still be quite substantial. Philip, was your research able to drill down into offering where the next unrest might come from, given you've got this dashboard? So I think specific prediction about specific countries is incredibly difficult. And in fact, when I started uh, working on this um, some years ago, when I worked in the Middle East and Central Asia Department, um, I was expecting to be able to draw fairly straightforward links from some sort of economic conditions through to unrest. And I think the first thing I learned when I started working on this was to have a bit more humility, uh, that a lot of the unrest that we see is not driven uh, by economic factors necessarily, and that sort of political issues tend to be as much, if not if not more important. And so I'd be you know loath to speculate on exactly where uh, unrest is likely to break out, or or how much of it might be specifically due uh, to price changes. So, Philip, how helpful do you think that this research, the the development of this dashboard to evaluate social unrest might be for uh, government policy, for authorities to work out and perhaps even mitigate, get on the front foot of where the next wave of unrest may come from? So I, I don't think we should necessarily see the value in, in a, in a tool like this as uh, saying that governments can immediately somehow uh, preventatively respond uh, to unrest ex ante. Often the underlying drivers of unrest are long-standing uh, uh, and, and, and fairly clear, and that the, the things that can cause unrest can be these often unrelated triggers. I think what the research does say is that uh, improving institutions matters. Uh, countries that are less vulnerable and have more policy space to respond when these events happen, for instance, if they have lower debt, uh, are in a better place then to address the economic impact uh, of unrest as and when it happens. Mm. And finally, Philip, have you able to have a look at, at Australia? How do we fare here? Uh, so I don't want to speculate specifically um, on Australia. Um, Australia is one of the countries which in general uh, tends not to have uh, very much social unrest. I appreciate that sometimes it might not feel like it uh, if you're in a given country. Mm. Um, but we have compared seen, to, you know, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, yeah. we have seen, you know, a couple of protests in the last uh, few years, predominantly um, anti-lockdown, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you compare it to something like, say, the Latin American unrest we saw in 2019, which was widespread all across um, much of Latin America, or the Arab Spring, or the mass protests we saw in Spain a few years ago about Catalonian independence, uh, those sorts of things, I think, are uh, an, an order of magnitude 
uh, larger and more disruptive. Philip Barrett, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Saturday Extra. Thank you. Philip Barrett from the IMF in Washington there.